Good morning. Hollywood doesn't make Westerns much anymore, but uh, when I was a kid, Westerns were pretty popular. Um, as a kid, we would watch the John Wayne movies. Uh, we'd watch Gunsmoke reruns. And whenever Clint Eastwood comes on, I still have to stop and watch a Clint Eastwood Western movie. And, and one of the things I liked about Westerns uh, is, is that it was, they're always straightforward. I mean, you knew uh, at the end of the movie or the show that there was going to be a showdown between the good guy and the bad guy where they would fight it out. Um, and early on, you would typically be able to figure out who the good guy was and who the bad guy was. Uh, in some of the movies, they were so blatant. You know, the one guy would have a white hat on and one guy would have a black hat on. And to kind of, in case you miss it, he's the good guy, he's the bad guy. Well, today we're continuing our sermon series looking at some of the parables that Jesus taught. And in the parable that we just heard, that was just read, there, there's a contrast between sort of a, a good guy, somebody that we would want to emulate, and a bad guy, somebody that we would want to avoid emulating. So let's take a look. Let's dig in again. Verse 1. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So right away, we know a couple of things about the audience that Jesus is addressing with this story. One is they were very confident in their righteousness. They're standing with God. They're, they're right living. Uh, they think they're doing the right things and doing them well. The other thing we discover about them is that they look down on other people. Because they think they're doing things so well, they compare themselves to others, and they think they're better than them. The irony, of course, is that in Jesus' mind, they're not doing so well at all. They're missing the point. So Jesus addresses them with this parable. And it's going to be kind of an edgy talk for them. This is not going to be a talk with they walk up to Jesus afterwards and say, that was fantastic. Can I get the, the podcast of that so I can listen to it again at home? It's not going to be that kind of talk at all. So here's the story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And we go, aha, we know this is just like the Westerns. It's pretty clear. There's a good guy and a bad guy. The Pharisee is the bad guy. I mean, if you spent time in science school or grew up in the church, uh, you maybe heard the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know that in the, those Gospels that the Pharisees are typically the guys who cause problems for, JD, for, 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 for Jesus. They're the ones who, who um, try to trip Jesus up with, with traps and dilemmas that seem to be unsolvable. Um, they, they try to stop him. He's filling their, their people with all sorts of ideas they think are dangerous and wrong. And so we know right away, in all likelihood, the Pharisee is the, is the bad guy in this story. Plus, we know the end of the parable. We just heard it read. But the original hearers did not. They would have perceived things much differently. For them, they would have thought, well, everybody knows that the Pharisee has to be the good guy. I mean, the Pharisee was a religious figure, a community leader. He would have been devout. A good guy did the right things. The bad guy has to be the tax collector. I mean, he collaborates with the Roman Empire. He's a, he's a tax collector. He skims off the top. He's corrupt. He's a traitor to his own people. He's a cheater. That's how they would have heard it. 
At the beginning of the story, the Pharisees, the good guy, tax collector, bad guy. I mean, think about it this way. In Jesus' day, if the Pharisee and the tax collector were both running for public office, who do you think they would have wanted voted in? Who would they have stumped for? The Pharisee. I mean, if the tax collector got in, I mean, he would have, it would have been a stolen election. He surely, there would have been corruption involved in their minds. Think of it this way. If both the Pharisee and the tax collector came to your house, they knocked on the door, I want to take your daughter out. Which one are you going to say, this is kind of cool. I mean, uh, this could be a potential son-in-law. Pharisee, right? Which one would you slam the door in the face of the guy? The tax collector. I don't want him to do anything with my, with my daughter. So they would have heard it much differently, had much different assumptions than we do because of our, our church background. There's other details that we need to pull out of here too, the contrast. The Pharisee, we're told, came to the temple to pray. The tax collector also. The Pharisee stands up and he stays away from the tax collector. They came to the same church, but he distances himself intentionally to be away from the tax collector. Why did he do that? He didn't want to be contaminated. He didn't want to be contaminated uh, ceremonially. Back then, you, there were certain things that you had to do to stay clean ceremonially. For instance, you couldn't touch a Gentile or a leper or a woman or a tax collector. That would make you richly unclean. So distancing himself from the tax collector was, in some ways, a way for him to proclaim his devotion to God. I'm going to stay clean. I'm going to stay above this. I'm not going to be tainted by this guy, this bad influence. And look at how he not only distances himself physically, but also spiritually. He makes a value judgment and assessment. Thank God I am not like other people. Thank God I'm not like that guy over there. Now, why does the Pharisee think he's doing so well? Take a look at verse 12. I fast twice a week. Now, in the Old Testament, Israelites were commanded to fast only one day a year, the Day of Atonement. This guy fasts twice a week. That's 104 days. In other words, 103 extra credit days. He's a spiritual overachiever going way beyond what's required of a follower of God. And then he says there's more. And I give a tenth of all I get. Now, tithing, giving a tenth was a big deal in, in the Old Testament. And it was kind of complex. And rabbis would discuss what it meant. Um, sort of like when we look at you know, the tax code, what are the loopholes, you know? So if you're a farmer, do you tax the seed? If you've taxed the seed, you have to pay taxes also on the harvest. You have to pay taxes on, on the oxen. The, you know, the, what do you have to pay taxes on? Kind of like our tax code can get really complex because of all these deductions. This guy pays no mind to that. He voluntarily takes no deductions at all. He's like a flat-rate voluntary tither, okay? He would be pleased to have his, his tithe returns published publicly. He's really proud about this. So he thinks he's doing really well with God. I fast twice a week, 
and I tithe the tenth, and I don't take any deductions. I give extra. I go beyond what's expected of, of, a, of a follower of God. And because of this, he thinks he's doing great, better than other people. Now, you might think, <clears throat> you know, I see the, you know, see the attitude. It's a wrong attitude to take. And, you know, I don't consider myself better than other people spiritually. We're saved by grace and all that. <clears throat> but this tendency to compare ourselves and assess better or worse, it flows into other areas of our lives, doesn't it? whether it's our political ideology or our cultural values or how we raise our kids or whatever. You know, I'm not perfect, but I'm, you know, I'm not whatever, fill in the blank. That's the Pharisee. Then there's the other guy, a, a tax collector. He's a moral failure. He's a misfit, social outcast. Listen to, how, to what it says. But the tax collector stood at a distance. And he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So the tax collector, like the Pharisee, separates himself. But it's not because he looks down on other people. It's because he knows he doesn't belong there. He is not worthy. He has no business being there. Where the Pharisee stood apart because he felt better than others, the tax collector stands apart because he feels unworthy. He's such a screw-up in his mind that his only chance is, is that if God is especially gracious to him and it weighs so heavily on him that Jesus says he will not lift his eyes up to heaven. Now, there's something inside of us. If we feel guilty, we don't like to make eye contact, right? Especially when we're younger. We get older, we get a little better at deception, unfortunately. But when we're younger, and hopefully when we get older as well, when we feel guilty, it's, it's uncomfortable to make eye contact with somebody that you've hurt in some way. And it's so deep, it's even true with dogs. Think about that, okay? We've got a dog, Tucker, very friendly. Um, he loves to make eye contact. He'll come up to you, put his head on your leg, and just kind of stare up at you. Just look at me, look at me. You know, I love you, I love you, I love you. His tail whacking on the floor. But if Tucker does something wrong, Tucker is a bad dog, guess what? He will not make eye contact. He won't. I mean, you'll, you'll grab his face, try to turn it, and he'll just kind of look away. Look, you know, he will not look you in the eye. At some level, he, he's got a conscience, I guess. He will not look you in the eye. Cats, they will never look you in the eye. <laughs> they won't. Think about that. They won't just, hey, you know, this is... I, I, I don't know if they don't have a soul or what it is. <laughs> I like cats. I do. But um, I think maybe they're thinking about, I'm going to kill you at night while you're sleeping. I don't know what it is. But, so this guy, he feels guilty. He feels shame. He will not look up to heaven. And it says he beats his breast. An extreme expression of humiliation and sorrow. He beats his breast. In Jesus' day, men would not do this especially in public. Women might, but not men. And it's only mentioned one other time in the New Testament, and that's when Jesus dies. So when the Son of God is crucified, there's no other expression to, that's adequate for this occasion. So this guy, he beats his breast, and his prayer is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
Contrast that to the Pharisee's prayer. God, I thank you. I'm not like other people, like that guy. Now, again, the people who would have heard Jesus' parable for the first time, they were probably listening and thinking, well, that's about right. I mean, if the tax collector dares to go to the temple and pray, if he dares to go, that would be an appropriate response. I'm a scumbag. I mean, that would be an appropriate response. Um, But then comes the twist in the story. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, the misfit, the loser, the moral failure, the traitor, rather than the other one, the Pharisee, the devout guy, the good guy, the guy who fasts and ties and gives, the, the guy who's got his doctrine right, the tax collector goes home justified before God. So the Pharisee goes unjustified. The tax collector is justified. And then Jesus drives it home with a phrase that describes the posture of people with whom God can work. He contrasts it to the posture of people with whom God cannot work. And it runs throughout all of Scripture. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And the listeners, their jaws must have hit the floor. Just just a second. The tax collector will be exalted? They thought they knew what it meant to be a good person. Most of us think we know what it means to be a good person. We have categories. There are good people, and there are people who maybe really aren't so good. And we have these categories, and we have a way of categorizing it in such that we give ourselves a little bit of grace, right? We let ourselves off the hook. We exonerate ourselves. So let's do a little righteousness audit for a moment. Back in the day, you're back in the day where Jesus was telling this parable. And you you think about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the way you would measure who was a good person in that community. So let's see who comes out on top. Who do you think read the Bible more regularly? Pharisee or tax collector? I'm guessing the Pharisee. Who do you think prayed more often? Pharisee or tax collector? Pharisee. Who knew biblical doctrine more clearly? The Pharisee. Who had a better spiritual reputation among the devout? The Pharisee. Who went to church or synagogue more often? Again, I think Pharisee. If you did a little self-assessment and you asked the Pharisee and the tax collector, Which of you really loves God with everything in you? Which of you tries to do your best to honor God and go beyond that? Who's going to say, "Um, that would be me? Pharisee. One more category. Who do you think was more aware of their desperate need for God? Pharisee or tax collector? I'm guessing it was the tax collector. God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus calls this awareness of and public confession of desperate need, humility. No pretending and no hiding. You know, there's a phrase that's used today uh, in, in groups or communities where people get really humble. Like, you know, keeping it real. Let's be real with each other. In other words, don't pretend to be something you're not. 
the reality is, maybe this is just me, but the reality is, apart from God, my mind can go places it shouldn't. Resentment or grandiosity or fear or self-focus or what can I do to do this and make this better for me or easier for me. My actions will flow towards self-indulgence in my will being done. And Jesus says, I'm starting a new community, the body of Christ. Everybody is welcome, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free. The only requirement, admit your need for me. Humble yourself. Turn to me. Admit your need. Now, that doesn't mean a shrug of the shoulders. Uh, You know, I'm not perfect. Nobody is. It's more than that. It means not pretending, not acting. The number one rule in Jesus' community is to be, thou shalt keep it real. And I think that's why the tax collector went to the temple. At some level, he knew that his only hope, the only chance he had, the only prayer he had, was to be honest with himself, be honest with others, be honest with God. God, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. You know, there's freedom that comes from not having to hide or pretend. Healing comes when you are known. Sickness remains when you hide. And in this world, we're taught reflexively to hide, to put on our best foot forward, to you know, do this, do that, to, to, to not be honest about ourselves. But Jesus says, in my new community, it's for sinners who are broken, who have been humbled because they recognize their immense need for me. So that's the turning point of the story. When the tax collector from his heart says, God, I need mercy. I'm a mess up. I'm a screw up. I need your mercy. And so Jesus tells this story to people who think they've got it all figured out, they're doing the right things, they're better than other people. He tells them this story where the good guy ends up being the bad guy, the bad guy ends up being the good guy. The good guy doesn't realize his need for God or forgiveness. The bad guy at the beginning, we think, the tax collector, he's under no such illusions about himself. You see, when we really see God for who he is and we see ourselves, we see our sin. That's just what happens. And when we see our sin, we, we cry out for mercy and for, and for grace and forgiveness and we can receive it. That's what humility is, is seeing God for who he is, seeing ourselves for who we are, acknowledging our need for God and crying out to God for his mercy and his grace. We see it time and again in the Bible. Take Job, for instance. Job is described as the most righteous man of his day. He suffers. And his friends say, you must have sinned badly. Job denies that. Now, the Bible says he didn't receive suffering because of sin. But it doesn't say he was sinless either. And he denies, I'm without sin. I didn't do anything wrong. But then at the end of the book, Job gets a vision of God. And 
he says this, I have heard of you with the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you and I repent in sackcloth and ashes. He sees God, he sees himself, he sees his sin. He cries out for mercy and forgiveness. Isaiah, another example in the Old Testament. The king dies, the nation is unstable. And he gets a vision of God in his holiness in the temple. And what's his response? Woe is me, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in the middle of people with unclean lips. We're all unholy. We're all worth unworthy. He sees God. He sees himself. He sees his sin. He cries out for mercy. We see the same thing with Paul. He writes, Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying. Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. He doesn't say, I was the worst. It used to be that, but I'm not that anymore. He could have said that maybe. I, I was on the Damascus Road. I was persecuting people. I, I approved Stephen's stoning. But he says, I am the worst of sinners. Because the next verse, he describes God, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. All glory and honor be to him. You see God. You see yourself. You see your sin. You reach out for grace and mercy, and forgiveness. H.G. Wells was no friend of the church. Uh, he often wrote to criticize the church and the faith, uh, but sometimes his critique could be helpful to give us some insight or a correction. And one such time was a story he wrote in The New Yorker, H., uh, and it, it was about an Episcopalian clergyman. It's a fictional story. It could have been a covenant pastor, a Baptist pastor, or whatever, but this, this guy was the kind of man who always said pious things to people. It sound, sounded good. And he would say it in such a tone of voice to make it sound even more impressive. Like somebody would pour their heart out to him and, well, have you prayed about that? And if you said it the right way, people seemed to, you know, settle things for them and they would leave impressed. But he himself did not pray much. He had life wrapped up into a, a nice, neat package. But then one day something happened and he found himself overwhelmed and he thought, you know, I should take my own advice. So he went to the front of the sanctuary by himself on a Saturday afternoon and he knelt on the rug and he prayed. But before he prayed, he folded his hands. He thought, well, this would be a good childlike posture. So he, he prayed, he folded his hands and began to pray. He says, oh God, and then a voice comes out. Well, what is it? And the next day, worshipers came to worship on Sunday morning, and they found him sprawled on the, on the rug in front of the altar, face down. And they turned him over, and they found out he was dead. And there were lines of horror etched on his face. And what H.G. Wells was saying in the story is there are folks who talk a lot about God who would be scared to death if they saw him face to face. But that's where we're called to live. The secret of humility is not looking inward at our deficiencies or our weaknesses, not comparing our virtues against other virtues, others, or, or our, our vices against the vices of others. Humility comes from looking up into the face of a holy, yes, loving, but holy God and seeing ourselves and our need for forgiveness and crying out for grace and mercy. That's what humility is. And that's what Jesus said 
justify this man despite his reputation, his background, his life choices. Isaac Watts captured it well when he wrote, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the cross of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them for his blood. Let's pray. God, we come before you and you, we acknowledge that you are holy and just. And we thank you that you are also a God of mercy and grace. We confess to you, Lord, that, that there have been times when we have been puffed up. You know, I, I'm not that. I'm better than that person. I haven't done that. We think about the, the good things we have done and feel pretty good about ourselves. Lord, help us to have more the attitude of, of the tax collector. To be humble. To be aware of our desperate need for you. To be honest with ourselves, with others, before you. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. We humble ourselves before you. May we be a place where people can be real with each other, with themselves, and with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand and sing with me as we respond to the word we just received.